Christians. In, in, uh, in 2007, there was a movie that came out. Some of you may have seen it. Anybody ever see the movie, The Bucket List? Anybody see that movie? It had Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson in it. And um, full disclosure, I don't know that I've ever seen the movie. I may have. I have a terrible memory. So I, I, every time I mention a movie, I'm like, I better make sure. Like, if, if there's something in it that I missed, it's inappropriate. And I, don't come tell me. Like, I didn't see it. This is just me telling you I didn't see it. But I've watched lots of clips of it, and I watched the trailer. And the whole premise of the movie is pretty funny. It's Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman. And both of them are, you know, older, and they have been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And they find themselves in a hospital room, sharing a hospital room with one another. But they're two totally different type characters. So Jack Nicholson is this old guy, he's a billionaire, you know, he actually owns the hospital that they're in, and Morgan Freeman is like this blue-collar mechanic who spent his whole life working hard, and they find themselves sharing this hospital room, and Jack Nicholson is just cantankerous. I mean, grumpy, like bitter, sour old man who's just mad about life and mad about this cancer. And then Morgan Freeman, again, he's just this blue-collar worker. He's trying to make peace with the fact that he's been diagnosed with cancer. Well, in the course of the movie, I won't give away too much of it, but basically they, they agree. Morgan Freeman kind of casts a vision to Jack Nicholson of like, hey, we could actually make the most of this whole thing by making a bucket list. And if you're not familiar with, I think most of us are, but if you're not familiar with what a bucket list is, a bucket list is like making a list of the things that you want to do before you kick the bucket. You know, before you die, these are the list of things that you've got to take care of that you want to do. So the whole movie is built around Jack Nicholson, Morgan Freeman trying to live out their bucket list and they do everything from crazy, you know, skydiving, trying to climb mountains, like crazy experiences, all to meaningful, like reconciliation with old relationships, all this kind of stuff. So this kind of tracks the whole story of the movie. And I remember... When that movie came out, I had heard of making a bucket list before the movie, but something happened after that movie came out. I don't know if it was just that movie or if it was the fact that the, the uh, coming, of that, coming out of that movie actually coincided with social media really taking off, but for some reason, the idea of making a bucket list became one of the most commonplace, like everyday thing that everybody is aware of. Like everybody has heard of a bucket list. And I know so many people that have a bucket list, or it's even just become a saying of, oh, I'll add that to my bucket list. You know, it's this thing that has just kind of permeated our culture, this idea of making a list of things that you want to do before you die. In fact, uh, I got online this week and I started like just Googling bucket lists and there are countless websites of people who are really eager and ready to coach you on how to make the perfect bucket list. And some of them, you know, I remember perusing this one website, they have really touching stories. One woman, I remember talking about how she was racked with fear and anxiety in her life until she made her bucket list and started living it out. And now she is living the travel, travel person's dream. Like she's just traveling everywhere, doing anything. Her life has become amazing because she's living her bucket list. And she has all these different ways to make your bucket list. Your, your uh, pre-baby bucket list, before your baby's born, your pre-marriage bucket list, you know, the bucket list to do before you quit that job and start your new job. I mean, she's got every category under the sun. One of the categories that she had was ways to keep laughing. And I read, I was like, okay, that's a pretty good thing to want to strive for, to keep laughter in your life. And so I read through her ways to keep laughing bucket list. And guys, I mean, some of the things on that list, one of them was like, make a meow sound every time you get an email in your office. <laughs> I don't know if that one's going to make my bucket list. You know, there's a, there was another one that was like, accuse somebody else of passing gas in an elevator. <laughs> like, these are the things that she had on her bucket list. You know, and I just perused those and was just laughing. The whole point of this is there is no shortage of advice on how you should prioritize your life until the day that you die. Like there's so much advice out there. 
How do you prioritize the things that you give yourself to before the day that you die? You know, I I thought about that and I kept thinking about this series that we're in. If you weren't here last week, Dave kicked off this series and the name of the series that we're in is called All In. And basically the thing that we're looking at is what does it look like for us to be all in as a family of followers of Jesus? What does it look like for us to be all in on life with Jesus? And I was thinking about this with, in terms of a bucket list. You know, a bucket list basically captures the things that you want to go all in on before you kick the bucket. These are the things I want to really give myself to before I die. And as I was thinking through that, um, it, I'd never thought in these terms, but it kind of hit me that the New Testament authors actually fully endorse this idea of a bucket list. The issue is the way that they think about the bucket list is framed up a little bit differently than our culture would think about it. Our culture would say the bucket list is the things you do before you die, but the apostles have a slightly different framework for how we orient and arrange our lives. What is the event? What is the event that we are called to organize our lives around? And we get a real clear glimpse of this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 through 10. So I want to read this verse, and I want you to, I'll kind of frame up how this is the apostolic bucket list for us. But starting in verse 7, this is the Apostle Peter. He says this, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. We're going to pause right there. Now, what in the world does Peter mean by that? Now, some of your Bibles don't have the words at hand. They have the word near. That's a translation choice on that word. And, you know, this is the same word. Peter's using the same word that Jesus would have used when he talked about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Using the same word that the Old Testament uh, prophets would have used when they were describing the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is at hand. That, That word at hand does not necessarily describe proximity, but certainty. What it's describing is, hey, the end of all things, what Peter is saying, the end of all things is certain. It is coming. You can count on it. You see, in our culture, when we think about a bucket list, the one thing that we've realized none of us as humans can escape is death. And so we go, this is the certain thing. I'm going to organize my life around this one event that's inescapable. But the apostles would say, no, there is another event that is unescapable, that is certain, that you can bank your life on. Here, Peter called calls it the end of all things, but what he's describing is the return of Jesus. You see, the apostles laid out that as followers of Jesus, the organizing principle for our life is the return of Jesus. The reality that Christ is going to return, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, that there will be a judgment of all humanity, that there will be a restoration of all things to be restored to their intended beauty, purpose, and goodness. This is the organizing principle for us. This is how we are to build our bucket list in light of the return of Jesus. So Peter says the end of all things, the return of Jesus, it is at hand. It is certain. It is coming. You can count on it. Now, most of us, when we think of somebody who lives their lives around the return of Jesus, we think of like apocalyptic thrillers, we think of uh, people who are just waiting for the end time, they're preppers, you know, they're living in a bunker somewhere, storing up food, going kind of crazy, and we'd look and be like, "Eh, I don't know, not for me, but I want you to look at what Peter says. Peter says, listen, the end of all things is at hand, it's certain. Now listen, this then is how we should live. He keeps reading, or he keeps writing, therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you can pray. I love this. What's his first takeaway? If you weren't here last week, 
Peter is basically emphasizing what Dave was talking about last week. He's saying, listen, the end of all things is at hand. It's coming, it's certain. Therefore, organize your life around the presence of God. He's like, be alert, be sober-minded. Don't let yourself get watered down by all the stuff that this world tells you matters the most. But instead, keep your mind clear so that you may pray, so that you may seek out first and foremost the presence of God, that you would have a hunger, a hunger for God in your life. So this is where he starts. This is the of utmost importance, but then he keeps going. And here, as we keep reading, you're gonna see that Peter makes kind of a shift. He goes from talking about what it means for my life with God, and he makes this shift where he starts talking about our life together. Listen to what he says. He says in verse eight, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. These are the words of the apostle Peter in the word of the Lord and what he's trying to hold out is, hey, here's the organizing principle. As followers of Jesus, we organize ourselves around the certainty of the return of Jesus. And it propels us, compels us to, to seek him first and foremost. And it propels us and compels us in the way that we do life together. And instead of going through this passage verse by verse and kind of looking at all the things that Peter lays out, I really just want to zoom in on one word that Peter uses. This one word, it's one word in his language, in the Greek language that he wrote in. It's actually two words for us in your Bible. It is the two words, one another. One another. In Greek, this is one word. The word is alelon. I think we have a slide that has that on there. This is the Greek word alelon. And alelon, this word is deeply significant to the New Testament writers, so the apostles, to Peter, to Paul, to James, to John, these guys. Jesus himself used the word a ton, and and the simple translation of this word is one another. It's used over a hundred times in the New Testament, over a hundred times. 47 times it is given as a specific instruction to followers of Jesus, to the church, on how we are to live life with one another. You know, the, the sheer magnitude of the number of times that this word is used should get our attention. There is something, there is something for us in how we do life together in the word that following Jesus doesn't just mean that, that I get more of God. It does mean that. It doesn't just mean that I get forgiveness of my sins. It does mean that. It doesn't just mean that, that I feel better, that, that I receive salvation for eternity. It does mean that. But there's also implications for what it means for how we live life with one another. And the apostles were adamant about this fact. And we're going to look at the number of times that this word is used in the New Testament. We're going to look at almost all of them. I'm going to show you those here in just a little bit. But before we do that, we've got to back up a little bit to gain some context on why the apostles are using this word so much. Why was this idea of one another and our life together, why was it so important to them that they spent so much time in Scripture? So to do that, we've got to back up a little bit. And when I, when I say back up a little bit, I really mean back up a lot. Like we're going to go all the way back to the book of Genesis to the very beginning of this whole story. You know, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the book of Genesis is the very first book. It's, you open up the front cover and there it is. 
And Genesis chapter one and two tell the story of the beginning of all things, the creation of all things. In the book of Genesis, you find that the origin of all things is God himself. He's the creator that everything we know and understand, the fullness of the universe, all the way down to the smallest microscopic cell, that God was the creator, the origin. He spoke it all into being. There's this amazing, kind of amazing story in chapter one of Genesis where it says that God created it all in seven days. And as he's saying it, there's this phrase that he says over and over again. He looks at his creation and he says, it is good. Seven times. You get this kind of picture of God just creating with a smile on his face. He, he speaks light into existence and he goes, oh, light, it's good. And then he keeps working and he goes, oh, land and sea. We're gonna have land, oh, it's good. Oh, seed-bearing plants and trees and bushes and shrubs that are gonna, oh, it is good. Animals, animals that can reproduce and grow according to their kinds. Oh, it's so good. Seasons fall, summer, spring, winter. Oh, it's good. God just over and over, he's creating with a smile on his face and he's saying, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And this stands out in stark contrast when you come across chapter two, verse 18. You've just been hearing about the goodness over and over again. And here's this moment in chapter two, verse 18, where in the midst of God's perfect creation, before sin entered in, in this sinless world, where man, Adam, the one man that had been created, he enjoyed perfect community with God, his creator. You know, this is what we talked about last week, this idea of having hunger for God's presence. Adam, the first man, he had that in spades. Like he, he had so much time, uninterrupted time and fellowship with God, walked in the garden with him. It was amazing. And yet in the midst of that, God looking at his creation, look at Genesis 2 verse 18, he says this, it is not good for the man to be alone. You're just faced with good, 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 and then all of a sudden it's not good for man to be alone. The only thing in all of creation that was not good was man's isolation. Now, I, I wanna just, if you're single this morning, and, and I, I, I'm not speaking into marriage, I wanna make sure I don't want this to derail us into going, oh man, it's so bad. Like, this is, not, this is not primarily talking just about marriage. This is talking about human community, human fellowship, people with people, man with woman, brother to brother, sister to sister. This is, this is what this is describing as human fellowship. And God looked at man and he says, man, the one thing in this creation that's no good is that this guy's by himself. He's all alone. There is something about humans doing life together that is central to God's plan in creation. The psalmist reflects on this in Psalm 133 when he says, oh, how good and sweet, how good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity. There's something holy about that, about us being together. But as you keep reading the story in Genesis, oh, and by the way, God's, God remedies that not good right away. He creates woman and presents woman to Adam. Adam gets Eve, and, and it's this beautiful moment where there's a perfect communion, perfect community formed between man and woman, husband and wife, and they, they know no shame, they know no sin, everything is good. But then you keep reading the story and something happens. Part of, part of what begins to unravel in what we call the fall was not just man's relationship with God, but man's relationship with one another. 
You know, if you're unfamiliar with the story, God had created everything was perfect and at the center of it all was this garden and Adam and Eve, this husband and wife, tended the garden together. They had perfect communion with one another, perfect communion with God. We don't know how long that little period lasted, but oh, how sweet it was that man and woman, humanity, would walk in the cool of the garden with God, their creator, and then chapter three of Genesis happens. The short version of the story is this, is that God put one plant in the garden and said, hey, this is the one thing you cannot do, but Adam and Eve chose themselves over loyalty to God and everything began to unravel. Their relationship with God. In chapter three, verse eight, it says that they, they hid from God. They were, they were like afraid of him. They went from having this deep hunger for his presence to being absolutely terrified of his presence and hiding from him. But it didn't just mess up their relationship with God, it messed up their relationship with one another. Chapter three, verse seven, they realized they were naked and they were filled with shame and they began to hide from one another. They made clothes to cover themselves up. It didn't just fill them with shame. In Genesis chapter three, we see that the unity of humanity was completely disrupted. In Genesis chapter three, verse 12, Adam, when confronted by God for his sin, he takes this classic man move and he like, (laughs) totally just says, not me, it was her. It was her, this woman that you put here with me. Adam, instead of taking ownership of his sin, throws his wife under the bus and then tries to blame God for giving him the wife. (laughs) Unity between husband and wife, between man and woman, between humans was disrupted when humanity stepped out of alignment with God's desire and God's intended purpose. And for the rest of the Bible, For the rest of the Bible, you read the story of what life is like with broken relationships between humanity and God and between humans and themselves. It's a mess. This broken fellowship between humans lies at the root of so many of the world's problems today. I mean, just think about it. Gossip, slander, lying, cheating, stealing, grumbling about one another, comparing yourself to everybody else, division, jealousy. Has there ever been a time in your life, in our lifetime, where we can feel this brokenness in the culture around us more than maybe right now? Like, aren't we all just so aware of the deep rifts that are being sown into the culture around us? All back to this moment when humanity forgot how to live life together in alignment with their creator. But the rest of the story isn't just doom and gloom. It's not all, you see a lot of faultiness, you see a lot of fallenness in the story. But the rest of the Bible also lays out what God is doing to try to redeem it. Bible doesn't just tell the story of brokenness. No, it tells the story of the God who wants so badly to restore that unity, to restore that relationship, that fellowship, and that oneness. He goes to great lengths. In fact, God himself puts on flesh that the inconceivable, the holy, almighty, one and only God would step into human form as Jesus the Son. And he would experience all the brokenness of human relationship and yet he himself would be perfect in light of all of it. This is the story of the Bible. Jesus was working. He came to restore things back to their intended beauty. You know, when Jesus said, I came that you may have life and have it to the full, he wasn't just talking about you and God, although he was. When he said, I can't even have life to the full, he's painting a picture of a person united with God, their creator, and living in perfect harmony and fellowship with all of their fellow humans, image bearers of God. This is what Jesus came to accomplish. 
restored relationship between all humanity and God. And so this brings us back to the apostles. Why were they so adamant about mentioning the one another's, that alelone word, the, the life together? They were, they were passionate about it because it's part of what Jesus came to accomplish. This journey with Jesus is not just primarily about you and God, but it is about you and me and me and you and us together as we pursue Christ-likeness. This is what we were called to. And if you're not convinced of that, let's just look. Let's just take a minute to look at these one another words in the New Testament. Now, we're gonna look at each one of these one another's, and obviously, we don't have time to go into depth on every single one of them this morning. And I don't have every single one. I have over 30 that we're gonna look at. And so, uh, this could be an entire year-long series of diving deep into the one another's of the New Testament. This morning, I simply just wanna look at them. I, I want just to, to soak them in, to read the description of what our life together is meant to look like. Now, there's a couple of ways to look at these. One of them is you could look at every single one of these one another commands that comes up on the screen and you could look that at them as commands to be obeyed. And that is actually good. Like obedience is a virtue. Obedience to Jesus is good. So one way to look at them is a list of commands that we are to obey. But there's another lens to look at these through that I think might be a little more helpful for us. As we look at these one another uh, commands, I want us to invite you to look at them as, as an invitation into a different way of being. Remember, we're talking about going all in. We're shifting from Christianity just being a part of your life to being a way of life. And these one another's are an invitation to engage in a different way of life. A metaphor to help us understand this would be, uh, think about the operating system on your phone. When you get a notification on your phone that you need to upgrade or update your operating system, most of the time we don't, we're not like, oh, pfft, there's Apple again trying to control me, giving me commands, things that I have to do. Watch me, Apple. I'm not going to update my phone. Like, no, what, we don't do that. What we do is we update it. Why? Because we know that our phone will function better when it updates. It'll be less glitchy. It'll be less annoying. It'll stop crashing as much. We update the operating system because it'll f function the way that it was intended to function. And what I want to encourage you as we look at these one another's, just look at this list as an invitation because the one who created your operating system, he knows exactly what you were made for. He knows how you were made to function. And so these one another, this list of one another's we're gonna look at is an invitation. Now, the very first one, the very first one is love one another. Love one another. Look at, look at how many times. And by the way, there's gonna be scripture references on all of these. So if you wanna take a deeper dive into any of these, just snap a picture of the screen. You go back and lots of time and lots of Bible verses you can look at. But love one another is the most common one another in all of the New Testament. And I've got 13 references up here and that's not even all of them. Over and over again, Jesus and Paul and Peter and James, the writers of the New Testament, they're gonna be going, oh, beloved, love one another love one another. This is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. You know, Jesus says that the whole, this, this command could sum the whole thing up, right? He says, listen, you could actually sum up the entire law with just this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor, love one another as you love yourself. And so this one sums it all up. But the problem with this one, like we could just stop and go, yeah, this is, a lot of people do this. They say, man, Christianity is just love one another. That's what the whole thing's about. And the problem with that is that love has become such a subjective word in our culture. Have you noticed that? 
Like in the English language, we have one word, love. And in the same breath, I'll be like, man, I love my kids. My kids are so amazing. Oh, tacos. I love tacos. Man, I love, like, do I mean that I feel the same way about tacos as I do about my kids? No, but I use the same exact word. We're so limited in understanding what this word means. At least in the Greek language, there were four different words for love. And they're there to help us answer the question, what kind of love is the Bible calling us to? Is it just that kind of feel-good love? Is it brotherly love? Is it, is it like this passionate love? What, what is the love that is calling us to? And the word that the Bible uses is the word agape, which means self-sacrificial love. Love one another with the kind of love that you would lay down in your life. But what I love about the New Testament is that it does not just stop with just one command. The apostles are insistent upon unpacking and describing in more and more detail what it actually looks like to love one another in the way that they have us do it. So what we're going to do is I'm going to put these lists on the screen. And before we put them up there, I want to just invite you to just reflect on these words. Reflect on them as an invitation. I'm just going to read through them. It's not going to be super exciting. I'm just going to read through them. And I want you to imagine, in whatever way you want to, that could be closing your eyes and listening. If you want to look at the words as they're on the screen, as you see them, I want you just to try to imagine what if this were truly our way of life together? What would it look like? What would you do differently? For some of you, as we read this, you're gonna think of specific people that you know you're not living this out with. What would it look like for you to receive the invitation of stepping into this way of operating? For some of you, you'll think about close friends and you'll be filled with gratitude. For some of you, you'll think about uh, places of loneliness in your life and it might even hurt a little bit. What would it look like for you to entrust that to the Lord and to ask him to help you with it? I just wanna invite you to imagine, try to imagine what would it look like if all of us went all in on living with one another like this? Here's the list. Honor one another. Honor one another. Welcome one another. Show hospitality to one another. Peter adds, without grumbling, like without complaining, making a kind of fit about it. Offer hospitality. Have fellowship with one another. Laughter, sharing meals, crying together, celebrating together. Agree with one another. Agree. Find agreement. As followers of Jesus, agree with one another. Live in harmony with one another. Be at peace with one another. Be kind. Be kind. It doesn't say be kind if people are kind to you. <laughs> Just be kind to one another. Forgive. Ah, oh, don't let bitterness, don't let resentment live in your heart. Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Bear with one another. This one speaks to just coming alongside, suffering with each other, carrying burdens. We've got three here that are do nots. Do not slander one another. Do not provoke or envy each other. The Apostle Paul here talks about being conceited, thinking only of yourself and poking at others. Do not grumble against one another. 
Don't sit around and talk about all the things you can't stand about your brothers and sisters in Christ. Comfort one another. Offer one another comfort in times of pain. Care for one another. Confess sins to one another. Don't be like Adam in the garden who tried to blame it all on his wife and on God. Take ownership, own up, confess your sins. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Build up one another. Exhort one another. Those three all kind of go together, this idea that we are to be building one another up all the more as we wait for the great day when Jesus returns. Instruct one another. The Apostle Paul in Romans 15 looks at this church full of new believers and he says, I'm convinced that you are able to instruct one another in the ways of the Lord. Teach one another. This is not the responsibility of one person in the church to teach. We are all called to teach one another. Admonish. This one bites a little bit. Admonish means to correct, to rebuke. Did you know that we're actually supposed to call each other out when there's things in our lives that don't line up with the ways of Jesus? Admonish one another. Sing with one another. There's joy and gladness. Do good to one another. Serve one another. Wash one another's feet. This could be taken literally or metaphorically. Just the idea of blessing another person in a task that feels menial to you. Be humble toward one another. Submit to one another. We are to lower ourselves for the sake of our brothers and sisters. Speak the truth to one another. Share your giftings, your talents, your abilities with one another. Accept one another and be devoted to one another. I love this list. I don't know what stirred up in your heart as we read through it. If you could imagine living that kind of life together, this is what we were made for. You know, too often we've been sold the lie that becoming a Christian means that we just go to church on Sunday mornings. <laughs> and I'm just gonna tell you, beloved, if, if this little hour and a half chunk of time where you sit shoulder to shoulder with, in a room full of 800 people, most of whom you don't know, if this is what you're, where you're expecting to encounter the beautiful way of community of life with Jesus, you will be disappointed. We were made for more than just this. This is good. This is good. But this is not what we were called to. It's not just an invitation to come to church. No, there's something more. I had this crazy realization, you know, as I started reflecting on how do we do this. I actually had this moment in a grow class that I taught this past summer where I was teaching on this very thing, the, the, the one another's in scripture, and I printed them out and I put them at the tables for everyone in the grow class. And I said, I want you to imagine what life in a community that does this would look like. And I walked around the room and I was shocked because I did not intend for this to be the conclusion, but I stopped at a table and listened to their conversation and somebody at the table said, you know, I would find it a whole lot easier to live out these one another's and maybe a little bit smaller of a group than on Sunday morning. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Then I went to the next table and I heard, yeah, somebody said, you know, I think this is actually a lot easier in my house church uh, than it is on Sunday morning. And I went, huh, that's interesting. I went to the next table, heard something similar. And so at the end, 
I stood up and I invited the girl class. I said, hey, share with me what you concluded if you looked at these. And what we discovered is that almost every single table came to the same conclusion that living out the one another's is more doable and more possible in a smaller group of people where we see each other more often, where we know each other more deeply, and we are actually living life together. I think the class thought that I had set them up as an attempt to convince them to sign up for a house church, but I did not like do it on purpose. The beauty of it is, the reality of it is, is that if we want to truly live into the one another's, we are going to need other spaces outside of Sunday morning to be together with each other. This is why we do house church. House church is not the only solution, but we are convinced as a church family that we are going to need smaller spaces of fellowship with each other if we are going to fully live into the one another's of scripture. Do you find yourself hungering for more, for more of life together? This is how we find it. Now, the truth is the only way we truly find it is by the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what happened on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two. The church was birthed because people began to realize their need for one another and nobody considered their possessions their own, but they made sure that everybody had and there were no poor among them. This beautiful moment in scripture. We are invited to that same way of life. The Holy Spirit longs to produce it in us, but it requires us to take a step of putting ourselves around each other intentionally, humbly, and vulnerably. Now, there are are many barriers for many of us as to why we don't experience this. You know, the truth is, for some of us, the idea of stepping in and trying to live these one another's with other broken human beings is terrifying. Maybe you have fear because of past painful experiences. Maybe your experience in the church was that people in the church weren't trustworthy, and we recognize that. Maybe for some of you, there's this fear of what if I put myself out there to live out the one another's and it's not reciprocated? And there's kind of this fear there. You know, I, I, learned, I learned early on, I, all of us have, have experienced trying to live life with other people, whether it's with a roommate or a spouse or a group of roommates. You know, what I've learned over the years is that it takes this continual effort. Like it's not about trying at one time, it's about keep stepping into it. And a lot of it is about being humble about my own faults. I remember I had a roommate in college, had no idea he was gonna be here today, but he is, named Jason Monahan. for those of you who don't know him. But I remember we were roommates in college. I'm not gonna point him out. I don't wanna embarrass him. But you know, we were roommates and we, we lived together for, for like more than two years. And my tendency as a freshman and sophomore in college was anytime there was a problem in our relationship as roommates is I always wanted to point the finger at him. I'm like, dude, if you, wouldn't, if you wouldn't keep leaving your beard trimming all over the sink, I'd be a lot happier, you know? Like, dude, if you wouldn't do this, if you wouldn't do that. But what I couldn't see was that I was a flawed human being sitting in relationship with him, and a lot of the conflict came from me. My tendency to be selfish, my tendency to want things to go my way. It took getting married for me to realize this. I don't know if you're not married. If you want a lesson in how selfish you are, get married. If you want another lesson, have kids. You'll learn really quickly just how selfish you actually are. Beloved, the reality is if we want to experience life together, we've got to keep putting ourselves together. We've got to keep stepping in, even though maybe there's been pain in the past, even though it doesn't happen as fast as we want it to. We have to keep stepping in to life together if we want to experience the joy of the one another's the scriptures hold out to us, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So this morning, you know, I, I, I want to just invite all of us. I mean, 
Yes, part of this does line up with an overlap with the reality that we launched house churches last week and we want everyone in our church to have a smaller community to be a part of and we would love for you to sign up for a house church. Will it be perfect? No, it won't. But will you experience some of what comes with trying to live out the one another's? Yes. Will you feel some of your own brokenness? Yes. Lord willing, you will also experience the joy of being forgiven by brothers and sisters and being treated with the grace of Jesus. So this morning, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna take communion as we always do. And what I wanna invite you to do is just reflect a little bit. As we come to this table, as we get the cup, as we get the bread, it is not about this solo pursuit of Jesus that I just get alone by myself and thank him for all he's done in my life. No, it is called communion. It is about union with Jesus and union with community. And so as we take the bread, as we take the cup, I just wanna invite us, just reflect, like, what would it look like for you to accept the invitation into this way of operating in life? What is one thing you could do this week to, to live into the one another's? Maybe it's one one another that stood out to you that you're like, I wanna step into that. For some of you, you may wanna reflect on what are the barriers? What are the things in your life that keep you from wanting to step into this and share it with somebody? Share it with somebody and ask them to pray for you to be able to work through that because beloved, we were made for life together, not life in isolation. So I wanna pray for us and we'll put these questions up on the screen and I just wanna invite you to go to the table, get the bread, get the cup and spend some time just inviting the Lord to help us to live into the one another's together. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Lord, I am, I'm so, so grateful. So, so grateful for the way that you've invited us into family, into community. Lord, this life is, it can be really heavy and really hard. Lord, we long for the day when we fix our eyes on you, Jesus. May that be the organizing principle, the organizing day, the organizing moment of our life. And Lord, as we wait, may we lean into what the apostles saw. That as we wait for that day, we are to be living for you and we are to be living for one another. Would you help us, Holy Spirit, to lean into that all the way? Jesus, would you speak to us as we commune? Would you draw near to us and keep drawing us closer to you, closer to one another? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's head to the communion table, grab the cup, grab the bread. We'll put these questions on the screen. I love you all very much.